Hey, deserving listeners, I have a huge backlog of patron emails, so I thought I'd get to a bunch today. Let's get to it. This first email is from anonymous patron. She writes, how do you help someone when the trauma is occurring in the moment, like for first responders? Um, In the email, she goes on to say that she is a first responder. She responds to car accidents, etc. People sometimes are dying or have died. And people sometimes feeling guilty for causing a car accident or for hitting a child while they were driving their car, etc. And then she goes on to say in the email, I picked up so much of the driver's emotion that I literally had to go shake it off every time I talked to him. So the the driver of the person who uh, hit a child. I picked up so much of the driver's emotion that I literally had to go shake it off every time I talked to him. How do you help the victims? Also, how do you protect yourself from the emotional onslaught? End of email. So there's a lot of things to say, but in brief, this is a very brief summary. And I'm sure, anonymous patron, you already know this as a first responder, but just in case you don't. If someone is going through a moment like that, they are uh, in shock, trauma, or some other acute tr- you know, psychological trauma state. They're not themselves. And so there's a lot of different uh, things you can do, but there's not anything you can do necessarily to eliminate the acute traumatic psychological state that they're in. And so a big part of it is just giving them time. But other things you can do is to be there for them, to understand their their state of mind, to, to not try to ask them to, you know, talk in complicated ways. Sometimes people in this state, they're in such a state of psychological shock that uh, asking them a complicated question actually scares them even more. So be careful about asking them for too much information when they're in that state. Also, tell them to breathe. Uh, It's very important that they get oxygen into their brain. It's also possible that their breathing is very shallow and uh, because of fight or flight and also uh, contributing to their anxiety. So telling them to take deep breaths, take slow breaths, this this cues the body that everything is okay. Another thing is to be very aware of fight, flight, freeze, appease, or faint. These are the five different uh, reactions to trauma and to fear. Fight, meaning that you have to do something, you have to, you get aggressive. Flight, meaning you run. Freeze, meaning you just freeze in place or you become blank or even comatose. Appease, meaning usually this is in sexual trauma or physical trauma of some kind. You just learn that it's better to appease the abuser in the moment than to try to fight or to run. And then faint, which is just to pass out physically, just pass out having a vasovagal reaction. Um, And... Uh, understanding those five different states and the and the signs of those is important. Um, you know, if someone wants to run away, uh, just kind of understand that that that's that's their way of coping. Now, sometimes as a first responder, you can't let that happen, but just just understanding that. And I, I find that there are basically two different kinds of first responders. There are first responders that appreciate the emotional state of people as they are uh, recovering from a traumatic situation and there are first responders who don't (laughs) and they just sort of bulldoze their way through a situation without considering that human beings have psychologies. 
Um, also, another thing that you can do is that tell them that everything is okay now um, because that might reassure them. Also, ask them if they need anything. Another thing is to use some sort of distraction. Sometimes if you give them a, you know, some water and you say, hey, you know, I, need you to, I need you to drink this water, sometimes that can help them because it gets them to focus on something rather than just stewing in their own terror. Also, if you can if, and if you think they can handle it, give them something to, give them something to do. Like I need you know, if they're the driver of the car, I need you to turn off your car and put it in park and I need you to uh, get out of the car and sit over there by the tree. You know, just give them something to do because that will help them to feel like they're doing something. It will, you know, will help them to feel like they're in good hands, that kind of thing. You can also, again, if you think they can handle it, suggest that they call a loved one. And if you can, you know, probably not, but if, if you can uh, and you can assess for this sort of thing, you could prescribe a benzodiazepine. Um, it, you know, there's usually an onset of 15 to 30 minutes and that can really help. Uh, benzodiazepines are wonderful for anxiety and terror and so um, if you can or if they have if they have the a prescription you might even be able to ask them so do you have any medications on you that might be able to help you with this acute anxiety so sometimes a benzo can help I'm not a prescriber or a medical professional but I do know uh, those who are and they will use benzos in this way sometimes um, now you also ask how do I help myself with the emotional onslaught. Well, this is complicated because a lot of professions and customs and cultures in these sorts of fields do not appreciate the kinds of trauma that first responders go through. There's a ton of research on this, actually, and it's clear that first responders are very susceptible to developing PTSD. I mean, if, it's obvious to me, if, if you're a first responder, if you're an EMS person or a police officer, the average uh, first responder is going to uh, come upon the worst scenes in their community, car accidents, deaths, you know, gun violence, uh, heart attack, uh, you, know, you know, violence between people in the home, all sorts of things. And we somehow think that first responders are robots or, well, you know, it's just their job. They're used to it. No, they can get kind of used to it for sure. But no human can become fully used to or accustomed to that amount of terror. All we have to do is look towards soldiers in wartime. These are professional killers and professionals who have a ton of training and experience killing people and watching people get killed next to them. And we all know that soldiers are routinely traumatized by those events. In this. And so uh, first responders are the same way. And again, there's tons of research on this. And really sad stories where first responders will become so, uh, so much suffering from PTSD and depression that they'll kill themselves because of the, the trauma that they've been through. And as a society, we just ignore that or somehow think that it doesn't happen. And as professionals, and not just first responders, but also uh, other sorts of medical professionals, there are all sorts of pockets within the medical community where it's not uncommon for them to have all sorts of routine traumas during the day. For example, 
Um, I have a friend who works at the University of Washington in the sonogram uh, department, and uh, she teaches other sonographers. And so when you think of sonograms, a lot of people associate them with happy times where you you know get to see the heartbeat of your unborn child and the you get to see uh, you know what what uh, sex the child is going to be you know, is it a boy or a girl gender reveal all that kind of stuff and the my friend tells me that yeah i mean there's a pretty good percentage of uh, you know first second third sonograms that are you know really wonderful moments for families but there's a percentage where it is not a wonderful moment where you discover that the child has passed away or that the child has a major defect, like the heart is on the outside of the body or the child doesn't have a brain or something like this. And this happens uh, not very frequently, but it happens enough such that if you work in high-risk pregnancy sonography, then you're going to see this stuff throughout your day. And not only are you at work and you have to be professional and you, you don't have time to talk about it or cry about it, but you have to hold it together for the family. And so there you and, – and a lot of times the sonographers uh, are the first pers- people that notice what's going on. So you know the family comes in and they're, they're all happy. Oh, we get to see the gender. We get to see the heartbeat. And then the sonographer looks at the screen and sees this child is dead. And I now have to tell the, you know, the doc on staff and, and then the doc is going to tell the family and the family, you know, looks at the sonographer and says, you know, what's going on? And the sonographer has to act like everything's fine or, you know, provide some sort of neutral thing. And this, this might happen once a day where – as a sonographer, as a as a radiologist, you now have to tell a family that their child is is dead. Um, and other, you know, and there's countless other examples. If you work in geriatric health, uh, if you work in hospice, this is um, routine. And and again, we as a society just think it's it's well, it's your job. And then a lot of the professionals will also just completely not support each other as they go through experiences like that. So what do you do? Well, what we need to do is we need to provide people to, uh, to have some time after significant events like that to decompress. You need – as a professional, you need time. Uh, maybe take the rest of the day off and just uh, take care of yourself physically and emotionally. Also talking about it with other people, obviously going to therapy and also taking vacations. This is very important. So. It's not uncommon for therapists to experience burnout as well and the single most effective cure for burnout and vicarious trauma risk is vacations, taking a full week off or two weeks off, that kind of thing. Not a three-day weekend but you know, a full decompress week to two weeks of no work. Um, now, getting back to time to decompress, a, a lot of – uh, employers won't want that, right? Because they're thinking about the bottom line, they're thinking about productivity, and if their employees are once a week just taking half a day off in the middle of the day, well, that pre- that presents a staffing problem, and you have to find a replacement for that person, or you have to, you know, pay them for time that they're not working, and that is the 
sane thing to do. That is the humane thing to do. If you want employees who are effective, who get good, get a good night's sleep, uh, don't have to take, don't have to quit the job because they've been traumatized so much by it. You need to have that accommodation for people. Um, so, uh, so those are the things you can do for yourself. And if your employer doesn't allow for that, I highly recommend contacting your union and um, getting some of these things passed. Now, I have heard of some professions and some unions actually allowing for this sort of thing, but it's not enough. There, there's this culture, particularly in the medical field, first responder field, where it's like, hey, suck it up. You know, you are you're now a part of an elite group of people who are first responders or you know high risk pregnancy medical people, and so if you're gonna be in this field, you got to suck it up. You got to be a tough person. You you have to be professional. And okay, there's nothing wrong with giving the message of stop complaining, but there's something wrong with not allowing humans to be humans. All right, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from an anonymous patron. She writes, I recently stumbled upon your podcast after an amazing yet tough and confusing year in a narcissistic relationship. It wasn't easy to find a reliable source of information online that actually addresses narcissistic personality disorder as it really is. I'm happy that your podcast can shed a different light on this very complex personality disorder. I'd like to know if you have any tips for dealing with the confusion and anxiety of a breakup with a narcissistic partner, particularly during the pandemic. End of email. Well, it's hard for me to know what you went through, anonymous patron. There are so many different possibilities as to what happened to you. But common experiences when you're in a relationship with a narcissistic person, someone who is significantly narcissistic is they can sh- they can subtly shred your self-esteem over time where you just feel like you're ignorant, incompetent, stupid, wrong, all the things. Um, the reason being is because deep down they believe they are a billion percent inferior and wrong themselves because they were treated that way growing up. And as a way of coping with that, they externalize that by socializing others to feel that for them. And the fantasy is, is that other people are incompetent, and so they aren't incompetent. And this is why they're so desperate to make sure that they're superior and always in their own mind on top of things because that is evidence that they're lovable and that they're stable. And one of the ways that they distract themselves from their inner worthlessness is to make sure other people feel worthless and exhibit incompetence and thus distracting themselves from their own issues. So over time, they can really subtly make sure that you know that you're incompetent, that you act incompetent. They might even kind of make sure that you act incompetently with things. Um, You feel very small around narcissistic people. Also, they can traumatize you relationally. When I've been around narcissistic individuals, over time, I can literally have PTSD as a result of interacting with them. When I recall a particular narcissistic, particularly one narcissistic person that comes to mind that I was pretty significantly involved with uh, in my past, my hands get sweaty. It's 
a, it's a trauma in the same way that uh, someone coming back from the theater of war might feel anxious, a fight or flight distress reaction when they think about uh, guns and helicopters and field hospitals and stuff. The other thing is that they can make you feel crazy. They can make you feel as if you're insane, like you, like you don't know up or down, that you're uh, you just feel like you're discombobulated uh, psychologically because their world is so discombobulated that it it just feels crazy to be around them. The other thing that they can do is they can influence others to hate you because after the breakup, they need to establish themselves as superior, particularly to you. And they might, with all of their skills of impression management, make sure that other people are on their side against you. And um, that can feel very bad. So I don't know what you're going through, Anonymous Patron, but that's one of the things, those are some of the things that could happen. There's others as well. So, you know, tips for dealing. Well, there's two things you're going through. One is the grief of the loss, and the other one is the recovery from the abuse. And when you recover from these things, then it takes time. You got to get support. Uh, emerging, Essentially, you're emerging out of a cult. It's like a cult of two people where your partner was Charlie Manson and you were one of his followers. And so you have to very slowly start to extract your brain from the brainwashing that you went through. Um, you also ask uh, about during the pandemic how to do this. You know, I don't know. There's just so many problems that the, that the pandemic presents for us. We are not meant to be separated from other people. And so I wish I had a good answer to that. Um, maybe the best thing that we can do is establish pods of people who uh, resolve to protect themselves from exposure to other people. And, and families are doing this in my area anyway in Seattle where you have, say, five families that say, we are going to um, have our kids – put into a, an education pod where they don't have to go to school, but all these five kids will be in a mini school together. And it's, it's informal, uh, meaning that it's not you know, government regulated, but these five families allow the, their kids to play with each other. They study together. All the, you know, the five groups of parents take turns teaching the kids different things. And the, and the five families agree that they're not going to expose themselves to other people. So along those lines, uh, maybe all of us should be thinking about that. The, the problem is, for, for me, practically, what I'm finding is that I can't trust other people. You know, I have, I have other people in my life that I want to create a pod with, and I will learn that they're exposing themselves in ways that I wouldn't be comfortable with. And then I just have to say, okay, well, I, they can't be in my pod. Or I just generally just don't trust their ability to be assertive with other people. Because, you know, one of the problems with the pandemic is that if you don't have assertive skills to begin with, this is going to really present a problem because, say, your boss, like, says, hey, you got to come into work. And you're just like, well, I could work from home. Well, you got to be assertive against your boss or your, you know, uh, I don't know, your your friends are like, hey, how come you're not hanging out with us? And 
you have to be assertive with them. Say like, look, I, I realize you seem to think it's okay to expose yourself, but I don't feel that way. And so I, I, it's really hard to develop safety among pods of people because so many people have different ideas about what they're wanting to do. And I have this this fantasy, and I, I don't really know how good this is, but and I'm sure this will never happen, maybe in 100 years or something. But I had this fantasy where a community would actually, like a large community, like a small town, and maybe things like this are already cropping up, would actually create a, a an enforceable bubble around this community where uh, there's actually like um, a wall <laughs> around the entire community. And you have... Uh, people from all different walks of life and all different jobs. So you have enough physicians, you have enough dentists, you have enough therapists, you have enough um, you know, uh, garbage handlers, you have enough accountants in this community and, and babysitters and, and teachers. And the community has um, upper class people, middle class people, working class people. And the entire community is uh, walled off and there are guards who actually uh, make it so that people can't come in and out. And I know this sounds like like a Black Mirror episode or something, but it, it, it I would live in a community like that. If, if someone said, hey, you know, for an extra X amount of dollars of rent per month, you can live inside this community and uh, live a normal life, even though a pandemic is going around outside – this community, like um, I might sign up for that. Of course, there would be problems. There'd probably be like some sort of racist, uh, systemic racism that would occur from from this situation. Um, you know, how do you impose on people's rights in that way? What if someone just has to get out? Or you know, it it creates all these. <laughs> and I'm sure the Black Mirror episode would explore all those downsides, but. To me, that's the only way I would trust anyone is if there was literally no way that your your group of people could expose themselves um, either uh, on purpose or inadvertently. And so <laughs> that's my little jog on that. But so you're asking, you know, how do you cope? Well, you're grieving and you're recovering from abuse and you're uh, recovering from being brainwashed into believing that you're probably a terrible person or something. And so going to therapy is a good idea. And during the pandemic, I don't know, uh, the talk to people on the phone more often, you know, really try to connect with people uh, at a distance, meet people outside at a park and, you know, be 10, uh, 10 feet apart with masks on. And, you know, we just, we just got to do what we can. Anyway, let's go on to another email. But first, let's take a break. All right, we're back from the break. This next email is from Anonymous Patron. They write, I grew up with distant parents and as a result have relational issues. I always seem to have one person in my life that I get very attached to and look up to as a good friend, usually someone older than me. I idolize this person and sometimes become very critical of them and have high expectations of them. There may be nothing wrong, but sometimes if they don't respond to me right away or if they don't constantly reassure me, I become very critical of them and think about wanting to end the relationship. 
I constantly think they don't want to be my friend or they will break it off with me or that I'm always bothering them even though they always assure me that that's not the case. It's like I become obsessed with the person and want to know everything about them and have a strong connection with them uh, and want them to like me. Is this healthy or is it related to some sort of disorder? Where does this come from and how can I manage it? End of email. So we've talked about this before in other ways, but to be specific, yeah, what you're talking about is preoccupied attachment. It's very indicative of preoccupied attachment. When people are raised in family lives in which there is occasional love and attunement and attention and then uh, a breaking off of that love and attention and attunement – and then it's sort of inconsistent love and attention. The the child learns uh, a, a strategy to deal with that. The child is not getting enough love and attention, and the attention and love is coming only occasionally. And so the child learns. Okay, here there's a there's a number of different uh, coping mechanisms and styles to this. But one that a lot of children will, will develop is they're going to lean into the relationship. They're going to say, okay. If I'm going to get more love and attention, which I desperately need, I need to pay. I need to pay very, very close attention to my caregivers, and I need to know them very well, and I need to uh, idolize them because when I idolize them and sh- shower them with compliments, they tend to like me more. And uh, but there's other lessons that come along with that, which is that these people are not going to take care of me. And these people at any moment are going to abandon me. And I am not inherently lovable. I'm not, I'm not good enough on my own. I need someone else to save me from the perils of the world and myself. Okay. So we can all imagine a four-year-old child developing that way of looking at things because they're in a desperate situation. Well, when you rinse and repeat this throughout one's life, throughout one's childhood, as an adult, you retain that way of looking at the world and coping. And anonymous patron, you're very wise to see this as irrational and not a good pattern. And that's a wonderful step. That's half of the journey right there. A lot of people who exhibit your pattern don't have any awareness of it. So you're doing really well there. The second thing is you're saying, okay, well, how, how do I, you know, what do I do to manage this? Well, with preoccupied attachment, and you might also have some sort of personality disorder spectrum. You know, it it sounds like it might be on the spectrum of, of borderline. Of course, you'd want to talk to a therapist for a proper assessment on this. But when it comes to, uh, you know, where does it come from? Well, like I said, you know, that's where it comes from. How do you manage it? Well, the, there's so many different ways of managing it. I mean, the entire field of psychotherapy is is um, geared towards helping you. Also, dialectical dialectical behavior therapy is another form of how to manage these sorts of things. But in essence, what you're looking for is awareness and management and healing. So you you have you have awareness down pretty well, and then how you manage it uh, practically is say you have this notion of, you know, you you mentioned here that um, 
you 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 feel as though you're always bothering them. You have this schema that you're always bothering, you know, close people in your life. And you're frequently saying, oh, I'm probably bothering you. And your friend is always saying, no, you're not bothering me. Well, when that notion emerges in your psyche and you're like, oh, I'm probably being a bother. I'm probably such a burden. Stop and think about that for a second. Evaluate that. Have a differentiated point of view on it. It feels as though I'm bothering people. But am I bothering people? My friend, she has uh, reassured me 15 times that I'm not bothering her. So it's a feeling, but there's no evidence that I'm actually bothering them. Okay, what do I do with that? Well, I could just try to ignore it and just be like, it's just a feeling. It's not reality, you know, Uh, and maybe that'll work. If that doesn't work, maybe if I go to her and say, so I'm having another one of those moments. So, so a typical way that people will deal with this is they will they will passive aggressively attack their friend for the assumption that they're bothering them. So, you know, uh, the, the person says like, "Oh, I'm I'm probably being a bother." Um, you know, she's not texting me back right away. It's because I've I've been too much of a burden. And so there's two dominant feelings. One is just like, I'm a burden and I'm terrible and I'm not worthy of love and attention. The other dominant feeling is anger at the other person for not being there for them, even though the other person has done nothing. The other person has not exhibited that they feel like you're a burden and the other person has actually been there for you. So it's a total invention, perhaps a minor delusion, which is where borderline comes from, borderline delusions, emerges in your mind. Okay. So the typical way that people will deal with this when they don't have awareness is they will lash out at the person and be like, I know I'm such a burden to you all the time, but can you please text me back? You know, that kind of thing. So that that comes from this assumption that the other person perceives you as a burden and this assumption that the other person doesn't actually like you. And guess what happens? Well, when you attack someone, then you become a burden and they don't want to be with you anymore. (laughs) So – that's the you know self-fulfilling prophecy. So instead of doing that, you contact the person. You'd be like, so I'm having one of those upwelling of paranoias that I'm a burden to you. And I know you've reassured me 15 times already, but you could really help me out by reassuring me that I'm not a burden to you. And I'm sorry that I'm imposing that on you, but I'm, I'm, you could just really help me out. Can you just reassure me that I'm not a burden to you? Okay. So in that role play, I'm exhibiting – I'm not accusing the other person of, 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 of abandoning me or mistreating me. I'm taking ownership of my own feeling. But I'm definitely asking for that person to reassure me. Nothing wrong with that. Everyone does this whether they have preoccupied borderline attachment or not. Everyone has moments where they feel relationally threatened or alone and we have a choice. We can get – we can feel hurt and then angry and then accuse or we can feel hurt and then hopeful and request. That'd be a good t-shirt, right? <laughs> you can either be hurt, get angry and accuse, or hurt and hopeful and request. I like that. <laughs> Maybe I'll just make it a t-shirt for myself. Anyway, so that's one thing to do. And there are many other things along those lines. But that, but that's the principle is that relationally speaking, uh, you have a lot of needs. 
and you're aware of it, which is doing pretty well. And then I just described one way of managing it. The third thing is to heal. So you need to have corrective emotional experience, corrective attachment experiences that are secure, that would correct for the abuse or mistreatment you went through growing up. And what this will do, and this is this takes a lot more time, you know, 10, 20 years of therapy with someone that understands this sort of corrective experience work. And after that time, it will mitigate your attachment insecurity and you will have less of these notions regarding the need to idolize others, the be very sensitive to the, you know to them, feeling like you're a burden, low self-esteem, becoming very hurt and critical of other people. So that is that. Again, go to a therapist that uses interpersonal therapy and understands preoccupied attachment. All right, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email, someone sent in this clip of Dr. Laura Schlesinger. I don't know if you know her, but she's a she's been on the radio for decades providing uh, advice to people and she's seen as kind of like a radio Dr. Phil. So I thought we'd listen to a little bit of it and then I would comment. Hi Dr. Laura. Hi. I am unsure of how to continue on in my relationship with my mother. I found out last September that my dad, the man who raised me, is not my biological father for the very first time. It has obviously caused a, a rift between my mother and I. Um, Why? 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 Was the guy who raised you nice? Yes, he is. So yes. let me understand this. Don't babble at me. So let me understand this. You want to dump a mother who made you with one guy, obviously could not have been the greatest guy in the universe. He wasn't there. And then she found a nice guy to raise you. And you're pissed at her? What in the hell is wrong with you? Um, I'm upset because she lied to me about it for so what? life. So what? Who gives a shit? That's her private life. She gave you a wonderful man to raise you, whom you consider your daddy. I seriously would rather smack you across the head than anything else right now. You ungrateful little twit. You insensitive, ungrateful twit. You want to counter me with anything? I'm dying to hear your counter. No, I respect my dad for so much for doing what he did. I was just very disappointed in my mom for never... You're a twit for saying that. You're a twit for repeating it. Well, my mom and I have continued our relationship. I just wasn't You sure beg your was mother right to forgive you for being a twit. My God. My God. Uh, uh, okay. So um, I'm flabbergasted. It, I'm basically witnessing an abusive moment between two human beings right now to, to utilize your power and privilege for sadistic means like that. I mean, is, is Dr. Laura always like this? I mean, I can't imagine that because she didn't slow down. I mean, she, it wasn't like she just lost her temper for a little bit. Like she, she doubled down on her abuse of that caller. Uh, so let's review the facts here. This woman calls in and says, that she was, uh, you know, she's an adult now, and she just learned that her her father is not her biological father, 
and that her mother lied to her her whole life. I, well, I guess both parents lied to her. And she's upset about that. Well, that makes sense, right? You're, you're upset. The, the caller isn't saying, and thus I reject my mother for all time. <laughs> uh, it's just she's upset. It's a very, uh, very scary or very, uh, I don't know. Uh, it would cause a lot of concern. You're just like, wait, what, wait a second. So my whole life, you've been lying to me about this detail. And yeah, thanks for finding a good guy to raise me. That's great. But you also lied to me. There, you know, there's, there's several different things you could do differently as a parent. And, you know, it's difficult to know what to do in a situation like that. Some parents will tell the kids right away. Some parents won't. Some parents will never tell the kids. It's, it's really just hard to know what to do, and we'd have to look at it a case-by-case basis. In general, I recommend that people tell kids early in life because you know kids can adjust to it. They can be like, oh, okay, so my biological father uh, didn't want to be in the family. Okay, but my, but my real father, my adoptive father, loves me a lot. Okay, well – there's consequences to that. You know, if you tell a six-year-old child that, there's, there's going to be some issues. But you avoid the problem of then later telling the kid or having the kid discover through DNA because, you know, with all the 23andMe stuff happening. And the child uh, doesn't have to face this realization that you've been lying to him the whole time. So the caller is calling in with a pretty common uh, reaction. It's you know it's a very very common reaction. I I would almost say it's universal that when an adult child learns that they you know one of their parents is not their biological parent, um, there's a negative reaction and there's a concern about wait you've been deceiving me this whole time because the concern is what else have you been deceiving me about? If you lied to me about that so effectively. What else have you lied to me about and what else have other people been lying to me about? It's very dysregulating. So then Dr. Laura, uh, not only so, – so there's nothing wrong with Dr. Laura or anyone for that matter saying like, well, you know, you should really just count your blessings. And there's no reason to get really angry at your mom. Your mom was in a bad place and she probably did what she thought – was best for you. Now, I would never say that to someone, but I could see someone saying something like that, and I would not necessarily uh, get upset about that. But Dr. Laura takes that to a whole other level and is seemingly just using that as a bludgeoning stick for her own sadistic pleasures of abusing another human being on the air. I mean, the language she was using, calling her names. Why would anyone call into this radio show? And I was amazed that the the caller, the you know, the person calling in, didn't just hang up or say you're a terrible person or something. You know, she just kept persevering, like, yeah, I understand, but I'm just kind of upset. Uh, it it's um, this is what people. I mean, she has a channel, and I guess people just like to listen. Maybe other sadistic people like listening to her abuse. Maybe she is very nice to other people, but somehow I can't imagine that this is an anomaly. Now, I will say that I am shocked because I actually liked Dr. Laura in the 90s. I don't remember what her radio show was like back then, but 
I was 24 years old, and she actually had a pretty significant influence on my decision to become a therapist. Sometimes I forget this, but it was early 1995, and I'm working as a businessman in Bellevue, uh, and Bellevue, Washington, near Seattle. And I'm, you know, listening to the radio because this is before you could listen to CDs in your car. You could listen to cassette tapes. But anyway, I was listening to a lot of talk radio. And Dr. Laura was one of the people on, on the radio. And uh, Tom Likas was getting started back then as well, Rush Limbaugh. Um, it, w- it was almost to the love line with Adam Carolla and, and Dr. Drew. Anyway. So I was listening to Dr. Laura, and back then I, I really liked her. Now, I, again, I can't stand by her, but I enjoyed it, that fact that people were calling in and talking about real issues in their life, and, sh- and she was um, you know, doing her best to help people. I do not remember her being sadistically abusive to people, by the way, <laughs> but maybe she was. And actually, uh, there's evidence that maybe she was because – when I decided to become a therapist, so I was a business guy. I'm, you know, I'm 24 years old, and I am seeing my life stretched out before me. I'm like, okay, there's, you know, you work at the low levels of the business. I was in market research, um, and you know, where you essentially, you know, gather data on the market, you crunch the numbers, you. Uh, develop reports. You also, you know, present bids to companies like Microsoft to, you know, have their business anyway. And I saw my whole life stretched out before me. I was like, okay, well, then I become a senior market researcher, then I become an associate partner, and then I become a partner, and then maybe I have my own market research firm. I saw that all stretched out before me, and and it, and I kind of liked it. You know, market research is kind of fun. It's interesting. It's sort of like the psychology of business. But for me, I just found that it wasn't fulfilling. It wasn't meaningful. It didn't feel like it had depth to it. And so I, at the time, was listening to Dr. Laura, and I was also uh, just contemplating a lot of different careers. And and hearing Dr. Laura, and I perceived her as being a therapist. And from my understanding, I think she's a, I think she's a, um, a medical professional. That's what her doctorate is in. Or she was a medical professional or something. Um, so she, I don't think she has any official training in psychotherapy. So she shouldn't be perceived as a therapist to my memory. Anyway, point is, is that uh, a lot of different th- things popped into my mind in terms of what other careers I could have that would be meaningful. And therapists popped into my head, I think at least in part due to listening to Dr. Laura. I even bought her book and read it. That It was like 10 Reasons Why Women Do Stupid Things or I can't remember the exact – uh, title of the book. But but anyway, during that time, I had this video of me that summer when I was 25 years old as I was uh, – I, I was already accepted into the program at Antioch, to, at the master's program. And I'm at a party. It's late at night. And there's this video of me basically attempting to be a therapist to my friends. And it is cringeworthy. And we're just having a conversation, but I'm really laying into my friends about things. I'm really like being judgmental and critical from a a, a sort of psychological angle. And when I watch that, it's fascinating to me because it was pretty quickly upon entering my master's program that I realized that my idea of what therapy was was completely false, that therapy was about 
empathy and relationship and positive regard and not yelling at people. And so I wonder, actually, if Dr. Laura was very sadistically abusive in the 90s and I just didn't know any better and I thought that that was actually good therapy and that influenced my understanding of therapy and that was quickly, uh, you know, um, countered by my actual training as a therapist. But anyway, let's just listen back to that again just to remind ourselves of how horrible this is. So let me understand this. Don't babble at me. So let me understand this. You want to dump a mother who made you with one guy, obviously could not have been the greatest guy in the universe. He wasn't there. And then she found a nice guy to raise you. And you're pissed at her? What in the hell is wrong with you? I'm upset because she lied to me about it for so what? Life. So what? Who gives a shit? That's her private life. She gave you a wonderful man to raise you, whom you consider your daddy. I seriously would rather smack you across the head than anything else right now. You ungrateful little twit. You insensitive, ungrateful twit. Yikes. My God. What? I, I mean, oh. all right, let's go on to another email. All right. This next email is from upper tier patron Aaron. She actually had a lot of things she wanted me to talk about, but I'll talk about one of them really briefly here. She wanted to know the difference between conduct disorder and oppositional defiant disorder. So if you're not aware, we have two disorders that are very similar in the DSM that we apply to children who are presenting behavioral problems. They're rebellious, they oppose, they do bad things. And uh, sometimes we might look towards two labels to to help explain what's going on. One is called conduct disorder and the other one is called oppositional defiant disorder. So let me talk about conduct disorder first. Conduct disorder is seen as essentially the precursor to psychopathy as an adult or antisocial personality disorder as an adult. Maybe another personality disorder as well. But but mainly what we're looking at with conduct disorder is the childhood version of psychopathy. Charlie Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer, these people uh, had psychopathy and were sadistic since they were very, very young, if not since they were born, or at least the tendencies when they were born. And yet, when we apply labels like psychopathy or antisocial personality disorder, sometimes on the internet referred to as a sociopath, we cannot apply those labels to people until they're about 16 years old. So what do we, how do we explain a 10-year-old that looks like they're developing into that sort of person. Now, Charlie Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer are very particular sorts of psychopaths because they murdered people. The vast majority of psychopaths and people with any social personality disorder would never murder anybody. So I just want to be clear about that. Um, you know, I, I don't know the ex- – you know, being a psychopath and having antisocial raises your risk of murder and sadism but, um, but not – to the point where if you looked at someone with antisocial personality disorder, you should be worried that they're going to kill you anyway. But so how do, what does conduct disorder look like in a child? Well, you'll have a, a 10-year-old who seemingly takes pleasure in harming other people. 
they don't have any remorse or empathy for other people. They routinely will lie and steal and charm people sometimes, and they just don't seem to care. And if they can get away with it, they will get away with it. So it's a very consistent behavior. Sometimes they'll uh, sadistically harm animals, um, but not always. They're often fire starters. They often like to start fires for for various different reasons. It's very stimulating to start a fire, and it, it also scares other people. And it's also powerful, so they like that sort of thing. So these are d- troubled individuals as young people. Now, some people with conduct disorder do not graduate to antisocial uh, for a variety of reasons, but – uh, whether it's just random or they're treated well enough or somehow they develop enough neurons to develop empathy for other human beings, whatever. We don't really know. Okay, so let's contrast that with oppositional defiant disorder. So oppositional defiant disorder refers to people that we're characterizing as not in the direction of antisocial, meaning that they probably do have empathy and they probably do care about other people. But they, they have a more narrow problem. So the person with conduct disorder, there is something wrong with their entire personality. They, they just don't have empathy for other people. They, they just have no remorse for hurting other people's feelings or, or stealing from other people and lying to other people or conning people out of things or, or harming other people. They, they just do not care. And so that is a – pervasive personality trait that is going to affect a lot of behavior. Oppositional defiant disorder is more narrow in that it's more related to authority. So the person with oppositional defiant disorder tends to just have this compulsive opposition to authority. And authority can be anything. It could just be like a friend saying, hey, um, you know, don't don't play with my toys so aggressively. So anytime people with ODD are told what to do, they have this compulsive reaction against it. And they often will shoot themselves in the foot in their opposition. So for example, they might be in class and you know the teacher wants to get control of the class and says, okay, class, everyone calm down. And then the kid with oppositional defiant disorder, he's like, you know, he's, he keeps talking. And the teacher goes over to the kid and says, Okay, Johnny, um, you know, playtime is over. I, I need you to be quiet. And the kid will say like, F you. And the teacher will be like, hey, if, if you don't calm down, you're going to go to the office. And the kid is, you know, is just like, well, screw you. Even though the kid wants to be in class and wants to participate and wants to not go to the office, there's some kind of compulsion that the kid exhibits where – they just can't control themselves. They just have to oppose everything. Now, when you talk to the kid, they will develop all these sorts of narratives about what's happening. They'll be like, well, it's always someone else's fault. And sometimes they can have a really hard time taking responsibility for their behavior. But the difference is, is the person with oppositional defiant disorder does have empathy for other people. They can have their empathy impaired sometimes, but they don't want to hurt other people. They're good deep down. When when they're not faced with authority telling them what to do, they tend to behave really well around other people. And there's not a, a pervasive personality trait that 
um, is troubling because the person, the kid with conduct disorder, they're troubling all the time. <laughs> You're around them. There's always an issue with that person. It's, it's not a fun experience. With ODD, you might find the kid to be perfectly delightful in, in a lot of different circumstances, and then something just kind of gets triggered in them and they just defy. Now, again, conduct disorder is considered a child version of a personality disorder. Oppositional defiant disorder is is more amorphous. It's more of kind of a catch-all phrase that we apply to kids that just seemingly have almost no control over their opposition. Now, a lot of people will say that oppositional defiant disorder is applied to kids who have reasons to defy. And certainly that's true in the same way that a lot of kids are slapped with a label of ADHD when they instead have like PTSD or anxiety or something. So the oppositional defiant disorder label can be abused for sure. And so some people will take that a little far and they'll say like that oppositional defiant disorder doesn't really exist, that it's just a, a, a label used to oppress children. And certainly it can be a label used to oppress children in the same way that any label in the DSM could be used to oppress anyone. But take it from me, as someone who treated a lot of families in my early uh, career, I saw oppositional defiant disorder in all its full glory. It is a very, very pronounced pattern in a child. And the other thing that we'll see with oppositional defiant disorder is it will be temporary. It will be a phase. Maybe it's a year, maybe it's five years, but kids tend to recover from that. So that's another difference between conduct disorder because with conduct disorder, generally speaking, what we're looking at is we're just looking at a young psychopath. With oppositional defiant disorder, it, like I said, it's sort of a catch-all for a lot of different things. And what I found was that kids who were abandoned growing up, who were mistreated growing up, and they just have a, a hatred for authority, which is rational because people in their lives who were in authority over them mistreated them. But they generalize that hatred to all authority, regardless of whether or not that authority figure is a good person or a bad person. And so that's one path to oppositional defiant disorder. And again, we only apply that label of oppositional defiant when it's creating a big problem, meaning they're not allowed to go to school anymore. Uh, they're being grounded all the time. Uh, you know, They're blowing out of foster care, this kind of thing. Another path that I saw for some of these kids is that they were suffering quite a bit and with, with moods or anxiety or something and they just weren't being treated well and they basically just are irritable all the time. And so uh, – and as children, you're very frequently being told what to do. Uh, children in their normal lives get told dozens of times during the day what to do when they don't want to do it. Get up, get dressed, eat your breakfast, get in the car, calm down, be quiet, sit down, read your book, come back in from recess. You know, don't, don't, you know, don't bother your classmates. Uh, you know, sit up straight, stop talking, go home, clean your room, uh, do your homework. No, do your, you can't go on your screens. You know, it is just a constant barrage of being told what to do as a child. And if you have any kind of 
crack in the system, depression, anxiety, stress, um, then you're but one of the things available to you is just to be like, screw it. I'm done with authority. I'm done with being told what to do. Uh, I reject the whole institution of authority. And so that's what we call oppositional defiant disorder. Uh, so there's that. Again, oppositional defiant disorder, when you see it in its full glory, it is compulsive. Like the the kids I worked with, I would sit down with them and I'm an adult, right? And they would see me as an authority figure and I would work so hard to get the kid to realize that I'm not an authority. I'm their therapist. I'm there to listen. And they would just have the almost an impossible time trying to uh, not react against me. You know, they they would be quiet the whole session even though I'm like, "Hey, let's just play games or let's watch YouTube or, you know, let's let's play cards. Let's do what you want to do." They would just compulsively react against me because authority was associated with a lot of bad things to them. And uh, whereas other kids, it wouldn't take me very long for me to convince them that therapy wasn't like school and wasn't like being scolded by a parent, that I was something different, that a, a family therapist is there to help and is there to do what they want to do, not to impose upon them. And so that would be the difference between someone with oppositional defiant. Again, the label can be misapplied to kids that justifiedly are oppositional. So we have to be careful with those labels. All right, let's go on to another email. I hope that satisfies at least one of your requests, upper tier patron Aaron. All right, this next email is from upper tier patron, anonymous upper tier patron. They write, I have been in therapy and I belong to several infidelity recovery groups. So just chiming in, in here. I'm guessing that these are online recovery groups for people who have been cheated on going on here. I have noticed that over the 10 years I have been in recovery, that most of the people in the groups are still struggling to be okay in their marriage, even after therapy and the cheating partner doing everything right. A great majority of them, like me, have been at this recovery from infidelity for years, and they are still angry and hurt. They still think about the affair and deal with the triggers. They almost always use the statement, I'm still struggling. I'm wondering, do betrayed partners ever fully recover? Is there a certain personality type that has a harder time recovering from infidelity? I feel like we never talk about the ways that betrayed people stand in their own way. Is that even a thing? End of email. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here, but... One of the things I'll say is that it is normal to struggle for potentially the rest of your life from an affair that you were victimized by. We have this notion in our society that you're supposed to just move on. And this essentially it's grief, right? It's it's the the loss of the innocence of the relationship or the loss of the purity of the love or you know, it it just really really hurts to be cheated on. And even if you break up with the person, uh, it's not uncommon to have psychological reverberations and being triggered to distress for the rest of your life. It's it's like saying, well, if you went to war and someone died right next to you, uh, you know, you should get over that after a year. Most of us understand that someone might have 
some traumatic reactivity for the rest of their life if they watch their best friend get killed right next to them. Uh, it's the same with infidelity. Our brains are oriented towards physical safety and social safety, such that when we are physically threatened, we have a lot of uh, mechanisms that will kick in to um, protect us and might also plague us later in the case of uh, war PTSD. But social situations are equally as threatening to us when we evolved clearly to uh, be very, very afraid of rejection from the tribe and from rejection from our spouse. And being cheated on is a, is a rejection. So uh, all of the same mechanisms of pain and trauma and uh, upwelling of, of memories of it going forward. So that's one thing I'll say is that it's normal, upper tier patron, to struggle essentially for the rest of your life. That's one. Number two is recovery, if you stay in the relationship, also lasts forever. You know, you say that, you know, I, you've noticed that over 10 years you've been in recovery, that you're still struggling and that a lot of people are still struggling. Well, it's another myth that after 10 years of, of working on recovery, you would be recovered. No. I've worked with couples uh, who have had uh, infidelity 30 years prior, and they're still struggling. The upwelling of, of fear and terror and hurt just happens. And so that's another thing. And this is why people should be very, very careful about infidelity. You could have one moment of cheating and cause damage to you and your partner for the rest of your lives whether you're together or not. Cheating can be extremely damaging. Research shows that. Research also shows that people vastly underestimate the damage and the trauma that infidelity can cause. So that's the other thing. The other thing you say here is that you feel like we never talk about the ways betrayed people stand in their own way. Well, this is victim blaming. This notion that uh, the cheated on partner stands in their own way. And uh, how is that possible? Of course, for you, upper tier patron, if you could uh, let go or move on, then you would, right? It's not like you wake up in the morning and say, I choose to, uh, you know, torture myself with an event that happened 10 years ago. No, it is what it is. Your body is doing that. You don't have any control over it. The last thing I'll say is that recovery is an ongoing process. So what I would recommend to you and all the other people who are still struggling is when you're triggered and when you have an upwelling of those feelings that you reach out to your partner and you say, so right. And this, this is, this is the way you go about it at any stage of recovery, whether it's the next day or 25 years later, you say to your partner, honey, I'm having another upwelling of emotion, of worries that, uh, that you're going to cheat on me and that you did cheat on me. And I know you've dealt with this before, and I know it's probably a bother to you, but I, I tried to suppress this feeling and I can't get rid of it. I'm still very, very hurt by what you did. And I just need you to know how much pain I'm in and how 
how much, you know, how frequently this, this distress, this trauma emerges in me. I know that you've apologized. I know that we've been to therapy. And I know that you've done a lot to make me trust you again. But I still hurt. And I still want to cry. And I still need you to reassure me. And I still need you to acknowledge that you did something wrong. And I still need you to apologize for the 250th time. I still need that. Can you give that to me? That's what you say. Now, as I always say, you know, people say, oh, it's so corny. Well, as I always say, if being corny uh, is healthy, then, you know, be corny. What do I say? It's on a t-shirt at the merch site. If being healthy is corny, then be corny. (laughs) Is that what I say? Anyway, uh, you know, you can reword it for your own purposes for sure. But, you know, that's generally what you want to say. And then as the cheating partner, you need to be open to apologizing and hearing that person and validating them. You want to say, thank you for telling me. Thank you for being nice about it. Um, I am sorry for what I did. Um, I'm, you know, anytime you need me to apologize, just let me know and I will apologize. I feel like it was a lifetime ago. I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm a completely different person now. I know I will never do that to you because I just love you so much. And, and you know, I was going through a really weird time during that time and I didn't really know myself or, you know, I, I was drinking too much or whatever it was. But I've, I've changed and I feel very bonded to, bonded to you and I have no impulse to cheat on you at all. And yes, deeply from the bottom of my heart, I'm sorry that I cheated on you back then and, and it makes sense. It still hurts you and I'm really sorry for what I did. Okay, so that's, that's the process. Every time you're triggered, yeah, you make that request. And every time you get that request as the cheating, as the cheating partner, you attune and react from a differentiated space. You don't have to fall on your sword. You don't have to be like, oh my God, I'm a terrible person. You just apologize like a grown person, like an adult. When you do something wrong, you apologize. And sometimes you have to apologize a thousand times because that's what adults do. So I hope that answers your question, anonymous patron. All right. By coincidence, the next email is also about infidelity. It's from good old upper tier patron Ed from New York. He writes, I'm writing with a current therapeutic pet peeve. So Ed is a therapist. I've been working with a lot of cases involving infidelity lately. Typically, I'm working individually with one of the people in the couple while the other couple, while the couple is also in couples therapy. I cannot tell you how frequently the couple's therapist will espouse a you-just-need-to-move-on approach. It doesn't help to dwell on the past. I can surely understand an, un- an unfaithful partner looking to avoid difficult discussions, but for a therapist to espouse this position is infuriating. My experience is that the betrayed party will need some questions answered. How did this happen? What were you thinking? How did you rationalize it? But before you can move forward, trust needs to begin to be reestablished, and having these discussions and answering questions like these are the beginnings of trust rebuilding. Not date night, poke me in the eye, or some hokey exercise exercise out of a couple's therapy workbook, or you just have to move forward. Any thoughts on this? End of email. Yeah, 
uh, so, I mean, I, I think I answered this question already in the previous email response, but yeah. So, uh, so many things to say. A lot of people just do not understand the research regarding infidelity. And therapists will develop countertransference and countertransference and couples therapy is at its height. I, I find this to be true with me and everyone that I've ever talked to is that as a therapist, when you're working with couples, you have the most intense countertransference, meaning that you have the most emotional reactivity and thus the most bias and the, the least amount of differentiation as you treat couples. So I think a lot of therapists fall into that. Plus, training is pretty bad, honestly. I cannot tell you how many people that I hear about and I just think like, man, your training must have been terrible uh, or their supervision was terrible or their continuing education has been terrible or something. It's just really sad. And I'm really sorry to all of you lay people out there as you seek therapy and you run into such incompetence. For a couples therapist – to tell the cheated on partner, the betrayed partner to just move on is absolutely ludicrous, not supported by the evidence, totally ignorant of the research, totally ignorant of the approach to uh, infidelity and recovery, totally ignorant of what grief can be like. And these aren't these things are not surprising to me. And I'm yeah, so good old Ed from New York, I agree. And you, yeah, and you name three things that uh, drive me nuts. Uh, one, you know, you have to move forward. Yeah, in any situation that drives me nuts. Under what circumstance can people choose to just let go of an emotion? <laughs> you know, it's so stupid. And then you also bring up date night. Yeah, it drives me nuts. So I teach couples therapy, and one of the things that I do not teach is date night. I never talk about like date night. Now, is is date night – so just so you know, a lot of incompetent or novice couples therapists will just say, hey, date night as a cure for everything. Now, there's nothing wrong with date night. Um, me and my wife have date nights. <laughs> it's hard to have date nights with the pandemic. But back before the pandemic, we had like overt date nights. You know, it's like, okay, let's – just you and me, you know, let's let's hang out. And it definitely would help our relationship. So for sure. But date night usually emerges from a healthy relationship. And when the relationship is struggling, just suggesting date night is is like so simplistic. And what I find when I'm training couples therapists, um, so, you know, I'll have a role played and I'm, I'm watching a novice couples therapist do couples therapy. One of the most common mistakes that the therapist will make is they'll, they'll, they'll listen to the couple fighting and they'll listen to their concerns and they'll be like, well, you know, how about date night? And I will immediately stop the session and I'll be like, okay, l get off of the date night thing. <laughs> like it's not a bad suggestion, but surely your conceptualization and your skills go beyond date night. <laughs> like let's get to attachment Let's get to emotions. Let's get to grief. Let's get to, you know, emotionally focused therapy, all these kinds of things. So, yeah, date night, as you say, poke me in the eye, Ed. The other thing you say is, you know, uh, that a lot of couples therapists will use some hokey exercise out of a couples therapy workbook. Yeah, 
So Gottman actually has a lot of these exercises. They're not hokey. They're good. But a lot of novice, incompetent, inexperienced couples therapists will rely on these homework assignments, these these exercises, because they have no conceptualization of actually how to help people. And so they will rely on these exercises as a way of masking the fact that they have no idea what they're doing. Couples therapy is extremely complex. You have to understand attachment theory fully. You have to understand countertransference yourself. You have to understand your own emotional reactivity completely. You have to understand culture and gender and sexuality and how to manage your countertransference and how to manage triangulation. You have to understand how to develop deep trusting relationships between two people as they vie for you to agree with them against the other person. You have to understand how to both validate both people without invalidating the other person. You have to understand projective identification. You have to understand um, how attachment injuries play out uh, interpersonally between two people and systemically cause the problems to perpetuate. You have to understand pursuer distancer. You have to understand personality disorders. You have to understand overfunctioner, underfunctioner. You have to understand differentiation. You have to understand all these things very, very well. And I have the luxury of being a professor in these areas. And I literally get paid to learn and teach about these things. So I have learned. And then I became a paid podcaster to learn about these things. And I'm still learning. So the average therapist, you know, they go to graduate school and they have crappy continuing education afterwards. And so it's really hard, you know, when are they supposed to learn all these things? It's a very complicated job to be a couples therapist. And thus, as you point out, Ed, you have these incompetent couples therapists recommending date night, using hokey exercises and telling people to move forward from their natural feelings. Very upsetting. (sighs) So many upsetting things in today's emails. (laughs) But, Ed, I love that you said, you know, refer to me as good old upper-tier patron Ed. (laughs) Because I've I've started to use that phrase, you know, good old Ed, good old, you know, um, good old Junie and good old Emily and all these kinds of things. Because, um, I don't know, it's just a quirk I just have. Anyway, everyone out there... Please take care of yourself and acknowledge reality of human emotion because we all deserve it. We really, really do. (laughs) 